do want to thank the 930 praise team for pulling double duty this morning. Uh, the 11 o'clock praise team took, took the, to, today off, and uh, we sure appreciate them. But we also appreciate this uh, 930 team filling in today, and uh, we do thank the Lord for their gifts. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I do want to uh, pause and thank you. Uh, some of you probably don't know what I'm talking about, which is okay. Uh, but um, this past week, uh, there evidently was a uh, pastor appreciation contest. <laughs> okay. And, um, and evidently, I won the thing. I, I don't <laughs> so, but anyway, I do want to thank all of you who uh, voted, uh, those who put it together. I know there was some people in the last service who kind of put it together, and then people kind of jumped on. And uh, I, I just really appreciate uh uh, your affirmation of me being your pastor. Please know that my wife and I, we dearly love this place, and, and we definitely have felt your generosity and your love for us. Just thank you for appreciating us. And, uh, and we're going to have a good time when we get, finally get to go. We, we were looking at the calendar saying, when can we go? We got a free trip, so we, we appreciate you making that possible. Also, let me give you two other things right quick. Uh, today is an open house for our new children's facility. Some of you uh, have already been able to go through that, maybe in the last hour. Uh, if you don't get a chance to go through, haven't had a chance to go through it, maybe you can jump over there at the end of this service. Uh, I'm sure they'll still be over there, and you kind of can kind of see uh, the direction we're going in with our children's ministry. A lot of people have worked very hard on that, and uh, we have great potential to reach a lot of children in this community because of that facility over there. So uh, be praying concerning that. All right. Well, First Peter chapter three. Today we're looking at a hero's defense, and, and basically I want to kind of look at it from this perspective. As Christians here in America, we might not be persecuted like those in the first century, but we can experience various levels of opposition which will increase in the coming decades. The trend of persecuting Christians in the U.S. is growing and will continue to grow. The reason for the growth of persecution is because the U.S. is moving away from its roots of following and embracing Judeo-Christian values. Our culture is moving further away from the truth of God's Word. Therefore, the bigger the chasm between the culture's ways and beliefs and God's truth, the greater the intensity of possible persecution. Y'all, we are living in a nation that we are currently in that right now. Now, some of you are here today and you're like, you know, I came for an encouraging word and uh, it's not, the Bible's not always encouraging. Sometimes it speaks to the situations we're dealing with. Sometimes it challenges, sometimes it convicts. But the thing is, we need to realize that something is happening here in the U.S. For the first time in all the generations of Americans, there has come a generation known as millennials. Now, the millennials, a majority of them, do not believe that God's Word is truth and do not believe they should live by its teaching. The majority of millennials do not believe they are, are or will be accountable to God's Word. Now, I look around a room here today, and I see many that I would call millennials. You're in that generation. If you were born between 1980 and the year 2000, you're part of the millennial generation. For the first time in America's history, a nation has been born, a generation, excuse me, a generation has been born that does not necessarily ground itself in the Word of God. Now, let me just say this. The millennials that I know that attend here 
are solid Bible-believing people. I mean, I see it in your face. I see that you're hungry for God's Word. But I'm here to tell you, you're going to face greater persecution than my generation ever did. You're in the minority now. My generation, we were in the majority. The baby boomers, by the way, I'm not one of those. I just missed a cutoff. <laughs> I'm a baby buster. I'm not even a part of that old group. No, I'm just kidding. But, but listen, you will be persecuted more than they ever were persecuted. And it's all because you're now in a minority. And for many of you, I don't, have to, I don't need to tell you that. You already realize that. You see it. This means that we need to prepare for growing persecution. It also means that we need to help our children and our grandchildren prepare for the growing persecution. I was talking to someone the other day, and, and, and I believe that this wholeheartedly. And I was with a group of pastors this past weekend, and we actually discussed this. And, and here's what we need to understand. When I raised my children, I raised them to be godly uh, men and women, okay? I, want, I wanted my son to be a godly man. I wanted my daughter to be a godly woman. And, and they're living that out. And, and, and that's one thing that we said. We, we want our children to live godly. We want them to serve the Lord. But now, do you realize what has to happen? We not only have to teach them to be those things, now more so than ever, we need to teach them to know how to defend themselves as Christians, for them to get back to the basics of the, even what the song we just heard. We believe, knowing what we believe, being principled in what we believe. Because listen, persecution is coming, unlike we've seen before here in America. So look at the introduction. How should we defend ourselves when faced with persecution? Or how should we react while facing persecution? Well, first of all, look on your outline. We are to face persecution heroically. Heroically, the, the world, look on your outline, the world cannot touch us spiritually. The world can't touch your soul. That can't, can't do that. Peter starts this section of Scripture with a rhetorical question. Look at verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Now, think about what he's saying. Who can really harm you if you're doing what is right? Now, we can take two things from that. We can look at that and say, hey, if you do right, Everyone's going to applaud and everybody's, no one's going to harm you. Let me ask you, is that true? No, that's not necessarily true. Sometimes people are, are, are threatened by our good conduct, are threatened by the fact we're making the right decisions. So what is he talking about here? What he's talking about is the fact that, that, that it's the whole idea, if God is for us, who can really stand against us? Now, now we know that we can be mistreated and harmed by the world if we do what is right. But the world cannot touch us spiritually. Peter is taking the conversation away from that which is temporal to that which is eternal. Secondly, we are to face persecution heroically. The world can threaten us physically. We can feel threatened physically. But our soul, our, our spirit will never feel uh, threatened. But, but in John chapter 15, Jesus is telling his disciples, look at what he says. Remember the word that I, being Jesus, said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It, it, it just comes with the territory. So look at verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now, there's three implications we can take here from this one verse. This is not on your outline, but the, there's three things here. You, the, it says what it's implying is you will be persecuted. It comes with the territory. If you know Christ, 
You're not living like the rest of the world. They're going to be threatened by it. You will be persecuted. Second of all, you will be blessed as a result. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's hard to see the blessing in being persecuted. How many of you can identify with that? Yeah, it's hard to see it. For some of us, it's not something that we immediately become aware of, that blessing. But, but later, it becomes something that we look back on and we say, you know something, I wouldn't trade that for the world. God did a work in my life. But here's something we need to understand. Part of that blessing is the fact that we have the privilege to suffer for the cause of Christ. It is a privilege to do that. Thirdly, you will be troubled by persecution. I mean, it is troubling. It is difficult to deal with. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look here on the screen, Paul writes these words. Therefore, do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. He's saying, get the focus, work on the inner man. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now think about who Paul and Peter are writing to in the first century. Both of them are writing to audiences in which persecution is everywhere. There are not only people being persecuted on their jobs, there are not only those who are being persecuted in their communities, the government is actually after them. And, and, and many of them are being persecuted to the point that they're even being executed. That's the context in which these men are writing to these people. And so he says, look at what he, how he describes it. For our momentary light affliction. I don't know about you, but that's pretty heavy. <laughs> if you're dealing with persecution that may take your life. I mean, that is heavy. But how's he calling it? What's he calling it? Momentary. That means it's temporal. It's not eternal. He says it's light in comparison to what? Look at what it says. An eternal weight of glory. It far more supersedes those things. And then he says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen, those things are eternal. And so he's saying, get your focus right. Look to him. They can't touch you spiritually. They can't touch your soul unless you invite them to touch your soul. But listen, they can harm you physically. But you need to realize there's an eternal purpose. There's an eternal weight that's there. So there's, there's several things I want us to look at here. Again, this is not on your outline, but persecution has great potential. Do you realize that? Did you know that if you look down through the history of the church, some of the greatest movements of the church happened when the church was being persecuted? I mean, it is. It's, it's, it's right there. It's in the scriptures. I mean, it's in, not only in the scriptures, it's also in, in history. You can see it. You can identify it. So, so persecution has great potential. It brings us into proper focus. When we're dealing with persecution, I don't know about you, but I'm looking for a perspective to have when something comes into my life, when I'm suffering, when I'm dealing with something in my life. I'm looking for perspective. And basically, Peter is trying to give them this. He's giving them the proper focus. Persecution has great potential. It can also bring growth to our souls. I don't know about you. But some of the greatest moments of my life have happened, I don't like to see it come this way, through suffering, through, through being mistreated at times. Not only that, persecution, as we see here in this verse, can bring blessings. Look at verse 14 again. I want you to look at the end of it. It says, And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. Don't be worried. Don't be deeply upset. 
when facing persecution. He says, be courageous, be heroic. In John chapter 14, Jesus is again instructing his disciples. And here's what Jesus says. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. The context he's writing this verse here is in the context that persecution is coming. He's basically saying, hey, they're going to come after me. So much so that I'm going to be leaving this place. I, he, he knew of the cross. He knew what he was about to face. But then he's telling them, he's saying that some of the same things are going to happen to you, and you need to be ready for it. You don't need to be fearful. Don't be troubled by it. He's basically saying keep an eternal spiritual perspective. Around 168 A.D., when the church father Polycarp was promised release, if he, was, if he would blaspheme Christ. And here's what he said. 86 years I have served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When the pro-council threatened to expose him to the wild beast, he replied, it is well for me to be speedily released from this life of misery. He was soon then burned at the stake. Yet he kept an eternal spiritual perspective. He faced his persecutors and died heroically. Listen, some of you are not aware of this, but did you know since the 1990s, on average per year, approximately 160,000 professing Christians die each year as martyrs? Did you know that? More people being persecuted, more people will have been persecuted this year than all of the first century, in which all the writings that we read there from, the, from Peter and Paul, that's who they wrote to, more being persecuted today in our world in the 21st century. Now, a martyr is someone who chooses to suffer death than deny Jesus Christ. Now, many of you would say, well, Polycarp, I mean, think about it. He, he lived 86 years. Wouldn't many consider that a full life? What about the person who has so much life before them? How are they supposed to sp respond to the persecutors? Well, here's a letter. Listen to this. This is a letter written by a Russian teenager in 1972. He is facing execution because of his stand for Jesus Christ. Listen to the letter he writes to his parents. My dear parents... The Lord has showed the way to me, and I have decided to follow it. I will now have more severe and bigger battles than I've had till now. But I do not fear them. Jesus has gone before me. Do not grieve for me. I'm doing this because I love Jesus more than myself. I listen to him, though my body does fear somewhat and does not wish to go through this persecution. I do this because I do not value my life as much as I value him. This is from an 18-year-old. He goes on. I will not surrender to them nor my own will, but I will follow as the Lord leads. Do not grieve if, it, if, it, if this becomes your son's last letter. Less than two years later, he would die from being beaten and being stabbed. Now, how did he face his persecutors? He faced them heroically. He had the right perspective. You think he was blessed through it all? Listen, he admitted there was fear. 
He admitted that there was fear as to what may be done to his physical body, but he knew his soul and his spirit could not be touched by his persecutors. Next, we are to face persecution intentionally. Not only heroically, but intentionally. You see, the whole idea of being intentional seems to escape the culture in which we live. I don't know about you, but we're so busy in our culture, we're not really intentionally living. We're just responding to all these different things and reacting to the different things that go around us. Not many families, not many individuals take a step back and say, hey, today I'm going to live intentional. Today I'm going to honor the Lord with my life. Today I'm going to seek and find someone who doesn't know the Lord. I want to speak encouragement into the lives of others. I want to be intentional to do good today that others may be drawn to. Nobody thinks that way anymore. It's almost like we are just surviving. We're just kind of going through the motions. We're just responding. But, but listen to this. If we need to be prepared for persecution, how do we go about it? Peter tells us, number one, be centered in God. And he's basically telling us it's a heart matter. It's all about the heart. If I were to ask you, what, what is your heart centered on? How would you answer? How would you answer? Right now, what is your heart centered on? Now, now think about what that would be. It would be something that you invest a lot of time in. You put a, a, maybe a lot of money into. You, 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 I mean, it's just something that consumes your thoughts. And many of us probably sitting here today would probably have to confess, well, it, it, not a whole lot of that is very spiritual. But, but, but what he's saying here, he's saying if we are to face persecution, if we're living in the midst of persecution, there's one thing that you better do. You better center your heart on God. So in verse 15, Peter is making a contrast. He begins the verse with a conjunction, but. He's implying don't center your heart on fear, which is mentioned in verse 14, but center your heart on God. Look at what he says in verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Some of you are sitting there saying, what exactly do you mean? does the Bible mean when it says heart? Well, it literally means your soul. It means your soul. It's, it's the intellect, it's your emotions, your will, your motives. He's saying center those things on God. And then he tells us there's two ways we can look at it when it comes to doing this. First of all, he says set apart. The word sanctified there in this verse, the word sanctified means to set apart. It literally means to place priority. To place priority. Turn everything over to him, namely your fears and your worries. And then he uses another word. He says, Lord, which says this, place under authority. You're not only going to place place priority, you're going to place yourself under authority. He is calling the shots. It literally means you're accountable to him with your life. Next, we are to face persecution intentionally. We need to be prepared to answer. And the word there that he uses, uh, this whole idea of answering, is the word hope. Now, we should live our lives in such a way that it brings intrigue to the lives of others. There was a gentleman some years ago that came to our church, and I've known him for a long time. And and I'm just going to tell you, he comes at life different than most people. I mean, when God brought this man in my life, I was intrigued by by the way he lived his life and his perspective on life. So much so that I would periodically go to lunch with him just to pick his brain. I mean, I mean, most people, when they looked at him, they thought, 
man, he, he, he ain't from around here, is he? <laughs> I mean, he was just different. But I was intrigued by him. I wanted to spend time with him. I wanted to know what made him tick. I wanted to know, how did you come with, with that perspective? And how does all that come about? Well, the thing that he told me was this. He kept telling me how precious his time with the Lord was. He kept telling me that he began each day intentionally seeking the heart of God. That, that's, that's what he told me. He, he said I would go to God's Word and I would read God's Word expecting Him to speak to my heart. And not only that, I, I would listen to Him to speak to my heart through my prayers. And, and I would say, God, okay, send me someone today to talk to about you. God, just give me that person. And y'all, that wasn't just a bunch of talk. That's exactly what I was observing in his life. And I'll be honest with you, I was intrigued with that. Now, I want you to think about this. Look at verse 15. He says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason, the reason for the hope that is in you. Now, our lives should evoke conversation and curiosity in those who do not believe. To the point that they are literally asking, whether verbally or in their minds, what is the deal with you? What is the deal with you? The phrase, be ready here in this context, means to be constantly in a state of preparedness. To speak on behalf of the kingdom of God. Now let me just say this. When it comes to witnessing, many of us don't stir up conversations with others because we feel like we don't know all the answers. I remember there was a long time in my life where I just didn't feel adequate. I can answer our questions. I can present something to them. I can tell them something, but I don't, I don't know the answers to all these things. I don't, I don't have a clue where, where the dinosaurs fit in in the creation story. And by the way, sometimes you do get that, right? But, but I don't understand how science and the, the opposition between science and, and creation, that way it's designed, how God describes it here. And so, I can't answer all those questions. Most of us can't. I have a, 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 a master's degree in divinity. I, I went to school a long time. And there's still a lot of questions I can't answer. But the thing that we need to realize is that we need to always have that, that thing that's out there. Listen, we may not have all the answers, but we should study according to Scripture to show ourselves approved. That means we do know something. That song, We Believe. I remember the first time I ever heard it on the radio. I thought to myself, that is a powerful song. That is what we believe. That's, that's exactly what we believe. And, and if we could just have a starting point of what we, what we know about Christ and it, the fact that we can defend it and, and bring people from the state of where they are to a state of hope, y'all, that's what the world is looking for. I don't know about you, but this person that I was talking about years ago, he, he's, he talked about how important his devotional life was to him. And, and every day, as I said before, he always wanted a word from God. And did you know that when I would, when I would encounter him or, or see him on a day-to-day -day basis, and by the way, I, I saw him quite a bit, he always had a word from God to share with me. Always. It, it was never one of them words, God told me to tell you. <laughs> no, he would say what God is doing in his own heart. How God is transforming him. And y'all, that's what we have. He was offering hope to me by sharing those things with us. Next, we are to face persecution intentionally. We need to be suited to be persuasive. And that talks about humility. 
We should look for ways to communicate with people about Christ. Now listen, I've heard a lot of people attempt to witness to others about Christ who stunk at it. They really did. It wasn't, had, didn't have anything to do with the content they were shared. Had everything to do with their attitude. Had everything to do with their attitude. Let, let me read to you what he says here in verse 15 again. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. How? With meekness and in fear. The word fear there doesn't mean to cower under. It just means to have a healthy respect for the person that you're encountering. The person that you're trying to lead to Christ. The person that you're, you're there in the conversation with. You see, we should be respectful of others. Not talking down to them. Not being a know-it-all. Not coming across self-righteous or arrogant. We should look for ways to gain their trust by investing in a relationship with them. There's one thing that you can study. How many of you remember the story when Jesus came across the woman at the well? How many of you remember that story in Scripture? She was a Samaritan. He gave us the most beautiful picture of how to witness to someone. Let me tell you some things that he did. Now listen, this was a woman who was known in her community not in the best light. Okay? Matter of fact, if people walked up on, and they knew who Jesus was because they certainly knew who she was, they could have jumped to a lot of conclusions about that conversation. You understand what I'm talking about? And so all of a sudden, Jesus is there, and he's encountering this woman. This was not a woman who, who, who uh, she knew she was a sinner. She came to that understanding. But listen to how he did it. He did not argue with her. He refused to get into a deep theological debate. He never condemned her or browbeat her. He did confront her sin, by the way. But, but she wasn't, the way he did it, he didn't condemn her. He shared with her. He repeatedly carried the conversation back to eternal things. You see, when witnessing, we need to totally rely on the Holy Spirit to lead us. Do you realize that's a person's only hope? Is that the Holy Spirit is leading us and that the Holy Spirit is working in their life to bring understanding as to what the gospel is. We need to understand it. Next, we are to, be, we are to face persecution intentionally. We need to be unstained in our inner being. And it's a whole idea of being honest or, or honesty. You see, sometimes we're not only not honest with others, sometimes we're not honest with ourselves. How, how many of you have ever been that way before? Just not honest with yourself. Rationalizing your sin or, or just, I mean, I mean we, we can do that. But this is talking about total honesty. Look at verse 16. He says, having, you do all these things in verse 15, having a good conscience. Making sure there is nothing that's keeping you from being the best witness you can be, even while you're being mistreated and being persecuted. Someone has rightly said this. Let a man so act that his conscience is clear. Let him meet criticism with life, which is beyond, which is beyond reproach. Such conduct will silence slander and disarm criticism. A good conscience, here's what it literally means, means that there is nothing between you and God nor is there nothing between you and others. Others. The word good here, if you're to look at the word good in this verse, it means good in character, which allows a person to be an effective a witness in the, in, and be effective in their dealings. Uh, on the way to a conference on Thursday, I was headed up to Greensboro, and I looked 
And there was a big billboard. I mean, it was huge. And it was about a, a, a school, uh, a prep school. And, and basically, he, here's the way they advertise themselves. L- listen to this. Um, they advertise themselves as come to a place where character is discovered. Character is discovered. Do you know that I know enough about myself to know <laughs> that there's not character in and of me? Did you know that? The Bible even says that. But did you know that character is not something that needs to be discovered in me because I won't find it in and of myself. It's something that has to be developed in me. It has to be developed. And there seems to be an implication in this verse that is talking about this. Character is not discovered, it's developed. Listen, a conscience may be compared to a window that lets in the light of God's truth. If we persist in disobeying, the window gets dirtier and dirtier until the light cannot penetrate through the window. That means truth cannot enter into the soul of a person. So, so here's our conscience. Our conscience should be clear glass where if truth needs to encounter us, it, there's nothing to hinder it. There's no obstacles there. It just happens. It's there. It confronts us. Now, if we persist in disobeying, the window, as I said, gets dirtier and dirtier until truth or light cannot enter. This leads to a defiled conscience and a stained conscience. Now, conscience depends on knowledge. It depends on truth. The light coming through the window of your soul. As a believer studies the Word, he or she better understands the will of God, and his or her conscience becomes more sensitive to right and wrong. A good conscience, listen, is one that accuses us from within when we think or do wrong. And it approves when we think or do right. And so that's what needs to happen. What he's saying is, listen, I know all of you are being persecuted. I know many of you have suffered for my sake. Don't get so bound up where sin enters your heart and you're bitter and you're angry and you're unforgiving. Don't take that approach. Don't be stained by those things. Don't let your conscience be stained by those things. Keep it clear. Keep it confessed. Keep it in such a way that truth can still enter in to your life and can challenge you. You see, having a good conscience gives credibility, confidence, courage, and even peace. All are necessary when we stand against persecution and we attempt to be a witness for Christ. you got to have those things. Next, we are to face persecution intentionally. We need to be determined to do good. It's a whole idea of being honorable. Peter now is getting ready to tell us why good conscience is necessary. Look at verse 16. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who insult you or rival your good conduct in Christ, they may be ashamed. Now, this is an attempt to turn the tables on the evil done to the person who's being persecuted. Those who slander you, those who mistreat you, those who persecute you, thinking they are shaming you or humiliating you, will one day themselves be shamed and humiliated. Did you know that? So here's what you need to understand. You don't need to continue to do good so that they can get it. When I say get it, that God will get them. Listen, everything that you read in Peter up to this point, every one of our actions, reactions, our attitudes, listen, those things need to point people to Christ. Read between the lines. That's what you're seeing. 
And what he's saying here is that we need to live, have a good conscience, that when those who seek to do harm, that it actually backfires on them. Not that they get in trouble, but to the point that conviction can come to their own lives. You see what I'm saying? That, that they can become, that they can find their guilt in what's going on. Good Christian conduct, uh, conduct listen, is convicting to those who are not in the faith or even those who are backslidden. You ever met, met a backslidden Christian? Have you ever met? They're the most miserable people on the face of the earth. They are. How do I know? I've been one before. I was miserable. You do because there's something within you. Listen, when you give your heart to know uh, to Jesus Christ, you repent of your sins, you come on his terms, the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in your life. You are not going to be satisfied living in sin. And so therefore, when you try to, you're going to be miserable. Now, you take a Christian that you work with. Let's suppose you're in a backslidden situation, and they're living before God, kind of like the gentleman I talked about earlier. They got a word for you each day from God. They come in, and they're just as gentle. I, listen, when I was backslidden, I didn't like those people. I had names for them. No, I'm no, just kidding. But, but listen, what he's saying is the goal, our goal, our good conscience, our good conduct brings guilt or conviction and the Holy Spirit. It enables the Holy Spirit to do a work in that person. They may, be, they may get madder at you. They may hate you even more. But you continue to do that, to live for Him and let your light shine in such a way that eventually they have to yield to what the Spirit of God is doing in their life. That's the goal. Next, we are to face persecution intently, focused on Jesus' example. Look at verse 17. For it is better... If it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, how many of you are sitting there thinking, no, duh. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty, why would he even put that in there? Well, simply because he's trying to remind us that, that there's something that's happening here. Listen, the will of God means all that happens in your life is of the providence of God. Here it signifies that our suffering should only be from, from others seeking to harm us and not from us uh, sinning ourselves. Then Peter makes a connection between our persecution and the persecution Jesus endured. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just, that's him, for the unjust, that was me at one time, and it's my persecutors, that he might bring us to God. Bring them to God. But we see, Jesus' persecution made way that we will be vindicated just as Jesus, but not only that, it also brings it in such a way that others can be reached by him. In verse 18, it's also a reminder, reminder that we were once in the same situation as those who persecute us. Did you know that? And, and, and that they need to be saved also. We need to keep that in mind. Instead of lashing out and saying, how dare you? We need to keep in mind that this is someone who needs, needs Christ. Next, we are to face persecution intently. We need to focus on Jesus' resurrection. Look at verse 18. He says, being put, the last part, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And the thing that we need to be reminded of is we will be raised just as Jesus. God proved Jesus was righteous and that his persecutors were unrighteous by raising him from the dead. Peter's point here to believers is that God will one day do the same for us so when we suffer for doing good we should remember that just as Jesus was vindicated by being raised from the dead so we are vindicated by being raised from spiritual death 
and will be finally vindicated when Christ returns. He's going to make it all right. He's going to set it all right. Next, we are to face persecution intently, focused on Jesus' proclamation. Literally, it means we will be delivered from condemnation. Look at verse 19. He says, by whom also he went, this is speaking of Jesus, and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, many people, many commentators have a hard time understanding what this verse is really all about. But it appears that between Jesus' death and when he came uh, in his resurrection, when he came back to earth to present himself before those who are on the face of the earth, he went somewhere and made a proclamation to someone. And the Bible here calls them spirits imprisoned. Now, the crux of Peter's point here is that through Noah, though Noah in his day was surrounded by persecutors who disbelieved and slandered him, God eventually vindicated him and his family by bringing them safely through the flood by means of the ark. So look at verse 19. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited, which, by the way, was over 100 years, in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, that's Noah's family, were saved through the water. Now, this means that Jesus' proclamation of victory was apparently directed to the evil spiritual forces that motivated those who disobeyed God and persecuted Noah in his day. Now, that is so deep to understand. But here, here's what he's trying to communicate to us. He's saying, listen, of course Christ suffered on our behalf. But there was a man very similar to you. His name was Noah. And listen, if you look at the context of Scripture, for 100 years he was mistreated. He, he, people brought suffering to his life. He was persecuted for 100 years as he was building the ark. And he's saying, hey, I want you to understand I delivered him out of that, and one day I'm going to deliver you out of that also. And, and that's what he was trying to, to, to communicate here. So Jesus' proclamation should remind us that though we are surrounded by persecutors as Noah was in his days, God will deliver us through the work of Christ as he did Noah and his family. Next, we are to face persecution intently focused on Jesus' exaltation. Look at verse 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of this flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not saying that baptized saves, being baptized saves anyone. That's not what this is saying. It's a, baptism is a declaration of something that's already taken place. And then he goes on about Christ. He said, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. What this is saying in this context is that we will rule and reign with Jesus one day. Peter's reference to salvation through the waters of the flood in the days of Noah reminds us of the waters of baptism which symbolize to his readers and to us the washing away of our sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus which was, which, uh, who was not only resurrected but he's also exalted by God to a position above all authority in heaven and above earth. And guess what? The Bible says we will join him in that. We will rule and reign with him in that. So those who are being persecuted, here's what he's saying. It's temporary. It's awful. I know. I've been there. Jesus could say, I've been there. Noah's been there. But let me tell you something. 
There's a day that's coming in which I'm going to vindicate you. There's a day that's coming. I'm going to make everything right. And not only that, you're going to be able to rule and reign with me. So here's the application. As Christians, we are responsible to defend our faith. We defend it by articulating what we believe and by how we behave, in this case, in the face of persecution. Jesus said this as I close. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Listen to this. Most all the martyrs you read about or hear about die. And in their death, they're more concerned about their persecutors than even their own lives. How is that possible? God, listen, has not called us to hate those who practice evil, but to pray for them and bring them into his family. And if it means we can, be, we can go through suffering and be persecuted to bring that about, the Bible's basically saying, so be it. It's only temporary. There's a whole new day coming. Would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we just again thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this challenge. And, and Father, I look around this room and, and I see those, many who were born, what I think, between 1920 and the year 2000. A, a whole generation, Father, that, that, that in which a majority of those who were born in that generation did not necessarily see your word as truth do not necessarily believe that they're accountable to that word. Father, I pray for those that are in this room who are now in a minority for the first time in our nation's history. And Father, I pray for them, Lord, that you will give them uh, a zeal to serve you, to live for you. Lord, I pray that they will be people of a, of a good conscience, that they'll be people who are principled and have conviction over what they believe. Father, I just thank you for them and and Father, I pray that you would just work in their hearts in such a way that when the intensity of persecution may come, Lord, that they can stand firm. Father, I just thank you for them. I pray for them. I pray for my children. I pray for my grandchildren that they will walk faithfully with you even through persecution. Father, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that be the day, today would be the day they turn their heart over to you. Give you their life, Father. And Father, I pray that they'll do that. Father, if there's someone who believes this is the church home you called them to be a part of, I pray you bring them also. Just do what you're calling people to do, Father. Work in their hearts and, and help them to be obedient to what you've called them to do. We thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Getting ready to hint, sing this hymn.